you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 13 this morning. Acts chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 12 today. We're resuming uh, our walkthrough of the book of Acts. We've been going through this for the last couple of months now. Last week, for any of you who weren't here, uh, we spent time praying for that situation in Afghanistan that I mentioned uh, this morning. Uh, so we didn't, we didn't continue on in Acts there. But before that, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 12. And in that chapter, James, the brother of John, was executed by Herod Antipas. And Peter was arrested with the same fate looming over him after the Passover celebration and after the festival of unleavened bread took place. Uh, Herod intended to do some trumped up charges on Peter as well and execute him to please the Jews. Uh, but Peter was never put on trial as an angel uh, arranged a jailbreak for him once again. This is not the first time that Peter has been supernaturally removed uh, from jail. And this has happened a couple of times. Uh, and after he got out of jail, it says that he realized that everything that happened wasn't a vision. He thought he was dreaming or thought he was having a vision. He realized, oh wait, I'm actually outside the jail right now. And he rejoined the church before going off to an undisclosed location. It just says he he went away. Uh, and during that sermon, I don't know if you remember at this point, but I mentioned that this is the second to last time that we hear from Peter in the entirety of the book of Acts. Um, after Acts 12, there's one other moment when Peter's name is mentioned, which is in Acts 15. And uh, in that, he weighs in on an issue that's going to come up uh, regarding the church in Antioch. And after that, Peter just fades away from the spotlight. Uh, he's still around. I mean, he's still alive. He's still uh, working for the mission of God. He's very active in the church in Jerusalem, but he's just not going to be a major player in the book of Acts. Beginning here in chapter 13, the apostle Paul is going to become the major focus of the book of Acts. Uh, starting here, we're going to see three missionary journeys that he goes on to spread the good news uh, all over the place from Asia Minor all the way to Europe. And of those three trips, his, the first one happens here in chapter 13, and then it will continue on into chapter 14, so we won't get all the way through this today. Uh, then his second missionary journey occurs in Acts 15, beginning in verse 36, and goes all the way to 18.22. And then the third missionary journey goes from Acts 18, 23, all the way through Acts 20. All right, so that's going to take up the majority of the book of Acts, or these three missionary journeys that Paul goes on. And then after Acts 20, Paul is arrested for stirring up trouble, as usual. This happens to him a lot. And the rest of the book focuses on his incarceration and how he presents himself to the different levels of government that he goes before as they try to figure out what to do with him. Uh, and eventually he will ap appeal to Caesar. Um, you know, go, when he does this, eventually that's going to lead to his death. He, he's going to die um, at the hands of the Roman government. Luke doesn't tell us that information. He doesn't go all the way to the end there. 
uh, and neither does any other place in the New Testament. But church history tells us that Paul was beheaded by Rome because he was a Roman citizen. Uh, and Roman citizens were rarely, if ever, uh, crucified, which is how most of the Christians would have been killed uh, by Nero at that time. And so instead, church history tells us that he was beheaded. Um, so that's, I mean, that's projecting into the future. Uh, but at this point in the book of Acts, Paul has many years of toil and trouble to get into as he shares the good news uh, with people uh, that he's been called to reach. And so let's uh, see how his first missionary journey got started here in Acts 13. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 3. All right, Luke begins the chapter this way. It says, Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set apart for me, said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So at this point in Luke's narrative, we're back in Antioch. And when we wrapped up chapter 12, we were still in the Jerusalem area. Now we're back in Antioch. And according to a timeline of the book of Acts uh, that I looked up, we've just jumped four years. All right, from Acts 12 to Acts 13 is a four-year jump, approximately, from the death of Herod Agrippa at the end of Acts 12 to this point in the life of the church in Acts 13. All right, so roughly a four-year jump. And the first thing that we should notice about the church in Antioch is they have a group of leaders there in the church that matches the city around them. We spoke a few, uh, a few weeks ago about how important the church in Antioch wound up being for the distribution of the gospel uh, to the ends of the world because Antioch was a hub of international activity. There's major highways coming in from the north, the east, and the south. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and Antioch was, I think, about 30 miles away from the uh, Mediterranean Sea so that people could ship their goods and come in, and they would use Antioch as a major international hub and if you have that kind of ethnic diversity diversity in the area around your church then it's pretty important to have that kind of ethnic diversity within the church right that means that the gospel is going out to the people in that city undiscriminately right if there's anybody there it doesn't matter where they're from what they look like how old they are whether male or female they're getting the gospel preached to them, and it's making the church uh, look like the city around them. Um, but it's just as important to have the leadership of the church look like the community around them, right? Uh, you want to have people in leadership roles from the different groups of people within your community, the people who are going to be able to relate best to those other people who have similar demographics that they do are going to be someone from that community. And here we see uh, in Acts 13 that Antioch had five leaders that were specifically mentioned. And Barnabas is mentioned first, and that's important in this time period. 
All right. Whenever you saw the disciples mentioned throughout all the Gospels, Peter was always mentioned first because Peter was the leader. That's how they put people in the order of their importance at that particular time. And so here in Antioch, Barnabas is mentioned first. Um, so Barnabas is probably the head guy in Antioch at this point. And he's a Jewish believer from Cyprus. Right? Remember, Cyprus was the island off to the left in the Mediterranean Sea. And then we have Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black or dark. And so he was probably from Africa. Right? Then you have uh, Lucius, who was from Cyrene, which was in North Africa. And then Manaean was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And so he was brought up in Herod's court. He probably had some kind of a close association with the upper class. He might have been the foster brother of Herod or somehow related in some way, but he grew up with Herod, the man who was trying to uh, attack the church. He, he knows this guy. He's intimate in relationship with him. He, he would have been friends or relatives of some kind with Herod the Tetrarch. And then lastly, you have Saul, who is a Jewish believer, and is also a Roman citizen, and he's going to bring uh, a more academic, a more uh, professorial dynamic to this group. But one thing that we should note is that Saul is not going to be staying at the bottom of this list for long. As he starts to make his way to the first of his missionary journeys, his name is going to go up on these lists. Uh, so... I can't imagine, though, if you think about it, imagine the church that you would have to have, the leadership of that church that you would have to have, where the Apostle Paul is the last name on the list of leaders. I mean, can you fathom how good the leadership in that church must have been if you're like, well, there's this guy, and there's this guy, and there's this guy, and there's this guy, and there was the, and the, the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time. The man that could basically talk to just about anybody about the gospel because he had the ability to kind of code switch into, okay, I'm talking to Jews here, I'm talking to Gentiles here, I'm talking to upper echelon intellects here, I'm talking to fishermen here. I can just talk to all those people and many people come to faith because of the work that I'm doing, but yet he is at the bottom of this list. It's unreal. I would have loved to have seen uh, what that church would have been like. Right? The, the diversity of thought, the creativity of how to reach out to their city to see people continuing to come to faith, watching all of that must have been a sight to see. I would have loved to have seen that. And then according to verse 2, it says, They were worshiping together and fasting together when the Holy Spirit called them to set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had to them. Uh, it's not clear whether the they that they're talking about here is the leadership of the church or whether that was the whole church. Um, so it could have been one or the other. Uh, but what is clear is that the Lord is pulling out two of the heavy hitters in this church and he's calling them away to a different kind of work. Right? That work is going to be leaving the church in Antioch and heading out for unreached places so that the gospel can be shared to those who've never heard it. Right? And the church is obedient. Right? They fasted some more. They prayed and laid hands on them. And then they sent them off. Right? This isn't something that we always see. 
Right? Usually, when we look to shake things up at a church, it's because things aren't going well. Right? When we see uh, changes happen, it's usually because something has gone wrong. Right? When things are in decline or when leaderships, when leadership people don't see eye to eye with each other or when the leaders in the congregation don't see eye to eye, that's usually when someone's willing to make a change like this. Uh, before I left uh, Raleigh, as I was wrapping up my time down there, uh, before Kelly and I were married and before I was beginning my ministry journey, I was working with uh, an elder down in Wake Forest and trying to do cold called sales to realtors. It was awful. I hated it. I hate talking on the phone. I hate trying to sell stuff. Uh, but I would try to set up appointments for him, and he would then follow up on the appointments that I actually scheduled uh, to try to sell a product to them. Um, and I don't, I just, I can't stand trying to sell people stuff. But he gave me one piece of advice um, that has stuck with me throughout time. He said, people typically will not change without pain. He said, people will not change without pain, especially not on their own. Right, somebody might make them change, but people don't change on their own without a certain level of pain. And he told me that the key to sales was to point out the pain that they're experiencing and then convince them that what you're selling is the solution to that pain. All right, and I never forgot that. But here, we have a church that's doing extremely well. Right? We're not let in on any type of pain that would have, lead, have led to this level of change. Right? You're taking two of your heavy hitters out of your leadership lineup. You've got Barnabas, who might be the most encouraging man to have ever lived. And then you have Paul, who is the greatest missionary to ever live. And then you see the church gladly sending them off in obedience to the Lord. That's an amazing example that's set for the church. Right? It shows that they trust the Lord. Right? This is going to leave a big gap in their lineup, but they trust that the Lord will take care of any needs that might arise in the absence of Barnabas and Saul. Being willing to lose two amazing leaders also shows that the leadership and the church believe that they're not the most important aspects of God's mission, of God's kingdom. They realize that they're there to serve, they're there to help, they're there to be whatever God would call them to be. And so in their minds, their mission and their ministry doesn't end with them. It begins with them. It's what they can give, what they can pour out. It's not just thinking, how can we make this better for us? How can we make this more comfortable for us? How can we minister to us? But how can we send out? How can we bless the world? How can we be a part of God's plan for the world? Right In their mind, they realize there are people lost and dying in the world with no access to the gospel. And here, they give their blessing on these two that God has, has sent out. They laid hands on them and prayed for them and gave them blessing and sent them out of the church in order to do what God had called them to do. That's an amazing example that they're setting for their people. Right? They're being open-handed with everything that they have, including the leadership of the church. And it's, a, it's 
It's amazing to me that the people don't fight to keep Barnabas and Saul, who's about to be Paul, in the church. These people are praying and they're fasting and they're worshiping. Uh, in, in, a, in a way, like the way Luke mentions this is it seems to be a normal part of their worship. Right? It, for us to pray and fast, usually, again, something terrible has happened. Right? We want to show our dedication to, to lifting it up. And so we'll, we'll pray and we'll fast. But the way that Luke mentions this here is it seems like this was just part of their regular time together. Right? They would gather together and pray. They would gather together and fast as a church or as church leadership. Um, it's just a part of how they interact with God and interact with each other. And because of that, when God calls them to make a big change, they accept it. They just do it. And they keep on with their worship. Right? You don't, we don't see them mourning and... Like, oh no, what are we going to do now? They continued on with the same worship that they were offering before any of this change happened. Uh, and this is a difficult thing to do if you don't have that kind of relationship with the Lord. Right? This is a big ask of God for this church. Right? I mean, just imagine losing two of your big hitters in your leadership. My question, though, is do you have that kind of relationship with the Lord? Right? We see these men respond in obedience. Do you have immediate trust when God calls you to do something difficult? Right? Are you throwing out fleece after fleece after fleece like Gideon to try to make sure, God, are you sure? Is that really what you want? Is that really what I'm supposed to do with my life? Do you really want me to lose this much of my income by changing jobs? Do you really want us to move out of the safety of this neighborhood into this neighborhood because you want to see the gospel go forth in places that it hasn't before? Do you want us to go to this other country where we could lose our life simply by proclaiming the name of Jesus? Is that really what you want? Right? God calls some of us to do these things. And if we don't have the type of relationship with the Lord that either these men or this church had when there is a big ask on the table, then we have a tendency to hesitate. We don't necessarily immediately jump into obedience. But are you willing to change your life at a moment's notice simply because the Lord told you to do so? Is your yes on the table? Whatever God calls you to do, whoever He calls you to witness to, whoever, whatever He calls you to sacrifice in your relationship with the Lord, are you willing to do that? What if it costs you your money? What if it costs you your time? What if it costs you your comfort? Is that yes on the table? Do you have that kind of relationship with the Lord? And do you think that this church as a whole, has that kind of relationship with the Lord. Right? What are we willing to do when God calls us to difficult things? Right? Will we be obedient? Will we sacrifice time, talent, and resources to do the things that God has called us to do? Or will we kick against the goads? 
Will we push away from that? No, that's uncomfortable. No, that takes part of my time, my talent, my resources, and I'm not willing to do that. I've given too much already. Do you think that this church is willing to do the things that God has called it to do? And at this point, Luke is going to share uh, the beginning of the first missionary journey in verses 4 to 12. The Holy Spirit, we see as we read through this, is the captain of this ship. He's the, the commander of this mission. And throughout this journey, the people involved are going to go to three different places. They're going to go to Cyprus, they're going to go to Perga, and then they're going to return back to Antioch, which will finish the trip in Acts 14. All right, we won't get there today, maybe not even next week. Uh, so follow along with me as I read verses 4 to 12. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and, we, and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then when he saw what had happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit sends them out. They're on the, well, they're not really on the road because, you know, it is an island. So they're on the boat. Uh, and when they arrive in Salamis, the Word of God is preached in the Jewish synagogues. This is really Paul's first step almost everywhere he goes for a while. Eventually, when he continues to get pushed back from the Jews, he will say, all right, I'm done with you guys. I'm just going to the Gentiles now. And that's going to break his heart. You see in the book of Romans where he said, I would rather be cursed than have my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters cursed. And, but they're not responding to the message. But, I mean, if you think about his tactics here, this is probably the easiest way to, to make a foothold in a new society because these people have studied the Scriptures. Like, you don't have to convince these people that the Old Testament is true. You don't have to convince them that the Old Testament is God's Word. So you just have to convince them that you've missed part of it. You've missed part of it because you don't see Jesus as the Messiah. And so what he would do is he would go in and he would read these Old Testament passages and say, that's pointing to Jesus. That's who that is. We're going to see his sermon uh, next week uh, from the rest of Acts 13 as he stands up and preaches in the synagogues. But we see again and again that these people are not interested in what he has to say. Uh, often they will attack him. Often they will push him aside. And so... 
But this is, this is his usual tactic. He's going to go in the synagogue and he's going to preach. And so it says they also have John as their assistant. This is going to become uh, important next week. John here is John Mark. right? This is Barnabas's cousin. And we don't know what's going to happen, but next week we're going to see that he vacates the premises. He, is, he abandons the trip. Uh, but right now, he is helping out as their assistant. We don't know what all he was doing, uh, but he was helping them out in this ministry. And as they're traveling around, they come to a sorcerer named uh, Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus. All right? And this guy must have been somewhat significant. You don't call someone a sorcerer if they're doing you know, sleight-of-hand tricks. You don't call someone a sorcerer when they're like, there's nothing in my hand, and poof, flowers, right? This is someone who probably has demonic influence in his life, and he has been given some level of power in some way. Uh, and he is at the right hand of the proconsul, which, hear the word governor. When you hear proconsul, think he is the governor of the island, probably. And his name is Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, Luke shares with us. All right, so they run into this man, and he is going to do everything that he can to oppose the mission of God, especially as Paul and Barnabas are called to uh, speak with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. He hears what they're doing, and he wants an audience with them, and so he calls them into his presence. And you see that Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, is constantly trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so we see after that that Saul also called Paul. And can I just tell you how happy I am that we've made this transition? I want to call him Paul so often, but I want to follow what Luke says. And so now we finally officially transition from Saul to Paul. Now, this is not... I've heard people use this as an opportunity like when you come to faith in Jesus he changes who you are you go from Cephas to Peter and you go from Saul to Paul this is Saul Saul is his Hebrew name Paul is his Greek name that would be like uh, I took for some odd reason I took Japanese in high school and if you pronounce the letters that make up my name in Japanese it's kurisu so it would be like, in Japan, I might be Kurisu, and here I'm Chris. It's, that's the only transition that's happening here, is he's beginning to engage with Gentiles, and so he uses his Roman name instead of his Hebrew name. So he's become Paul, but Paul is how I know him, and I'm very grateful that we can now call him Paul from the rest, for the rest of this book. Uh, so as he's being opposed by Elimus, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He stares straight into Elimus' eyes and he says, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy that, of all that is right. Now, Paul is an intense man, right? I don't know, I really don't know anything about his stature, but for anybody who will eventually get stoned to the point where they thought he was dead, they drag him out of the city. And for him to get up, shake it off, and walk back into the city where they just threw rocks at him and tried to kill him with that. Like, there's something about Paul that is extremely intense. 
I mean, I don't know if it's his stature or just his mindset or what, but I can guarantee you if Paul, if the Apostle Paul was staring at you with his finger like this, you would not appreciate that look. I mean, this man is intense. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He stares straight at Elimus and he says, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? And he says that the Lord's hand is against you. And all of a sudden, he goes blind. He says, you won't be able to see the sun for a time. And he goes blind. Something um, mist and darkness fell on him and he went around looking for someone to take his hand. And after the message that Paul and Barnabas had been sharing was shared, and then after seeing this sign, the type of power that Paul has commanding from the Lord, it says that when the proconsul saw what happened, he believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, again, I've said it a lot. I'm going to keep saying it. The, the miracle is the exclamation point for the message. So Luke here wants us to understand that it's not the miracle that made the proconsul believe. It says he believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And that's why it's so important that we make it our life's mission, our life's goal to take this message, to take the, the word of the Lord and take it into a dark and dying world. We've got some people that said, I will never believe until I see a miracle. But if the Holy Spirit is working in, in their life and is opening their eyes to the truth, it's not the miracle that they need. There was many people in Jesus's life who saw the miracles that he performed that did not believe. You know, they would follow him around like, you know, their version of Netflix. Let's see what this guy's going to do today. Oh, cool, he healed that guy. That was awesome. You see that? High five. Let's go home and get something to eat. We'll see what he does tomorrow. But there's many people who have all the, the miracles that they need done right in front of them, and they never came to faith. Where the power is, is in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. The power is in sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world with people who are far from God. And the Holy Spirit will do His job as we do ours and He will change hearts. He will change lives. He will bring people from death to life and there will be a reconciliation with God the Father to many who have been enemies, children of wrath, as Paul will call them in Ephesians 2. We must be faithful with this message. So what does that leave us? What do we do with this? I mean, we're not going to be blinding people, hopefully. Um, so what do we do with what we see in Acts 13, verses 1 to 12? Well, first of all, I think it's important that we be people who are in the type of relationship with God that when the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, you can both hear it, right? Some of us have our lives so full of everything else except God that when God does speak to us, we can't hear it. And so we need to be people that are in such a close personal relationship with the Father that when the Spirit tells us to do something, we are willing to respond 
in affirmation, no matter what the cost, no matter how difficult it is. When God says, I want this from you, we need to be the type of people that can hear that and respond to it with affirmation. That means that we got to spend time in our scriptures. we got to spend time in prayer. we got to be moving forward in our life. A life that is constantly trying to bring us away from God. We have to fight upstream by the power of the Holy Spirit to move into that relationship with God. And we have to be doing that in such a way that when these times come, when God says, look, this has to change, we are willing to do whatever it is that God has called us to do. All right, number two, remember that when you are on mission for God, if you are making it a point to take this message of salvation into a lost and dying world, you are going to be opposed. Right, we've said this over and over again, too. It's a common theme in the book of Acts. Right, when we are faithful with this message, we will be opposed. Right? We've got an enemy in this world who does not want to hear this gospel go forward does not want to see people coming to faith and lives change. And on top of that, you also have people who do not appreciate being told that they're dead in their heart and that they're going to hell. I want to live my life my way. I don't want to hear this nonsense from you that I have to be obedient to some God who I've never seen and never experienced. And because of that, and because you're standing in my way, then I will oppose you in some way. Bar-Jesus tried to get in the pro-council's way. He did not want him to hear the message of the gospel. And we don't know exactly what he was trying to do to oppose Paul, to oppose Barnabas, but he was getting in the way somehow. And so we must be ready for that. It's going to happen if we are faithful with this message. Someone is going to step out in opposition to us in some way. If that's not happening in your life, it's probably because you're not doing anything for the mission of God. I mean, I'm sorry if that stings a little bit, if that's a little too blunt, but if there's zero opposition, it's probably because there's zero effort being made. And I remember talking when I was in seminary to a girl who was, I used to work at GameStop, and I was sharing my faith with her and she said so wait 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 like she just cut me off in the middle of it she goes so you you're saying that if i don't agree with you that i'm going to hell and i was like i'm not saying that if you uh, don't agree with me that you're going to hell i'm saying if you don't have a relationship with jesus christ as your lord and savior you're going to hell and i can tell you at that moment there was opposition she did not appreciate that and it changed our working relationship. Right? She was not pleasant to work with after that. She did not care for me after that. But when we have these types of conversations with people, some people, it's just going to be like, you know, over their head, they're not even going to flinch at it. Other people, it's going to rub the wrong way, and they're going to be in opposition. And other people, you've got the Holy Spirit who has worked on their heart, has prepared the soil, and you get to see some harvest there. If nothing else, you just kick the can down the road a little bit closer to the harvest for someone else as they share their faith. So number two, 
Remember, you're on mission for the kingdom of God, and on that mission, you will face opposition. And number three, remember that God is with us in our opposition. Right? We have to remember that they're not opposing us. They're opposing God. Right? When they throw hate and shade in our direction, like that's not coming at us specifically unless we do it in a jerky way. Sometimes we can do that, and then it is coming at us. But for the most part, people are not coming at us. They're coming at God. And He promises to be with us throughout all of it, right? If you remember Matthew 28, 18-20, He says, Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always until the end of the age. So no matter, no matter what, no matter how you are going about this mission for the kingdom of God, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit goes with you every single step of the way. Right? So remember to be in relationship with the Lord. So when He calls you to do some of these things, that you do it. Remember that as you go to do these things, there will be opposition. But also remember that in that opposition, God is always with you all the way until the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the book of Acts. I love to see the changes that happen in people. I love to see the, the reality of your church growing and expanding. I'm grateful for the example that Paul and Barnabas set as they go off um, being called away from Antioch from the safety, uh, the relative safety of that place and going out into a world that it might be hostile uh, to the gospel as we're going to see. And Lord, I'm thankful for the church there in Antioch and their willingness uh, to take a hit, um, to be obedient to you. That they're so trusting in all that you are and all that you do that they would be willing to say, Lord, whatever it is that you put down here, we'll do it. Help us to be like that. Help us to be people who are willing to sacrifice time, talent, and resources. And that, that would come together as a church that is willing to sacrifice time, talent, and resources. And that we would go from this place with this mindset of being on mission for you. And that you would lay the groundwork for many people to come to faith through the, the efforts of Oak Grove Baptist Church, Lord. And as we face opposition, I pray that you would help us to rest in your strength, your power, your love. In such a way that we, we look at these people who are opposing us, we look at them with sorrow for the willingness to fight against you, Lord, as, as opposed to uh, aggravation or hate or whatever it would be that would come across our heart when we face that opposition. Help us to know you, love you, and see you in the proper way as we go from this place, as we take your word into a lost and dying world. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.